Hey there, welcome to Vet Club. It's the week. The week. We're doing an episode of the week so we can talk about the week. I wonder how many other podcasts have that same intro music. Uh, Probably four. It's just the generic intro music for the... (laughs) Why would you tell everyone our secrets? (laughs) They thought that that you had written that yourself and played it on your instruments. (laughs) They didn't know that. I have no instruments. He's just kidding. He wrote all this himself. It's very unique music that no one else uses, except for the people we sold it to. (laughs) Also that. that. You recorded that yourself. (laughs) <laughs> um, you're right. It's probably more likely that I would make all the weird sounds since I've done that on the show before. Um, so it's the week. So we'll talk about what happened this last week. What should we talk about? I don't know. I we we saw <laughs> saw a movie. We saw Tar. We did see Tar just the other day. Yeah, it was good. It was weird. Not weird. It wasn't even weird. Weird is not the right word. Yeah, I thought it was going to be weird, and it, it yeah. wasn't weird. It, it that wasn't. was the weird part. Yeah. <laughs> That it is. It was kind of like it wasn't what I was expecting it to be. The previews, um, I think, yeah. Anyway, um, so we we did that. That's fine. We should probably talk about work stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the big case I had, um, I had a, a ventilator case this week, which, since we got our um, mechanical ventilation set up, um, I think that's our fourth case. Um, since I got the new ventilator and so in like, so they're pretty infrequent still, um, which is what not are you batting. Uh, if you're talking about successfully getting off the ventilator, I'm batting a thousand. Yay. Um, if you're talking about successfully leaving the hospital, 750. Oh yeah. There was that one that, that came like, off. It was doing great. Yeah. The ventilation stuff. And then I think it, it died suddenly. I don't know if it threw a clot or something like that, but it wasn't respiratory stuff. So the ventilation part was successful, Yeah, um, but it didn't leave the hospital. Yeah, sad about that one. It was really sad. Um, but I mean, 75%, which again, three out of four <laughs> is still pretty darn good. I mean, that's about case selection. So um, two of them have been neurologic and two of them have been respiratory. And so the, both of the neurologic ones have done well. And then, um, isn't that normal? Like if it's a neurologic yeah, thing, yeah, they're usually exactly. going to have a good outcome. Yeah. So if their lungs are healthy, um, but they're just, they, they can't take a breath as long as the reason they can't take a breath is reversible. The prognosis for those is quite good. And then for the lung ones, again, if the reason their lungs are broken is relatively easily reversible, um, then uh, the prognosis for those is also quite good. So um, a lot of, you know, success for mechanical ventilation is is really like a lot of things. It's about case selection. So if, you know, when you're talking to people about, hey, if we can, like, this is really bad right now, but if we can get him over the really bad phase, if we can keep this patient alive for the next couple of days, the long-term prognosis is quite good. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of been our case selection, um, so far, which it, I, in general, and I don't know how to say this differently, but it's easier to not convince people, but to get people on board with a plan of, Hey, you're going to spend a fair bit of money in a short period of time, but the outcome is quite good. Like, you know, we, we have a reasonable, um, expectation of a good outcome. And so it's easier to ask people to invest in that, um, financially, emotionally, like we think this is going to go well versus, you know, if I tell a patient, you know, or tell clients like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, your, your animal is suffering and we either need to humanely euthanize it or we need to put it on the mechanical ventilator and we're going to spend thousands of dollars. And there's like an 80% chance that it's not going to go well. Like it's, it's harder for people to do yeah. that. Well, so, it's kind of as insensitive as it's kind of like buying a car. It's like, if you're going to spend 
$10,000 and you might get a car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're not going to do it. Or you might get a car for three days and then you don't have a car anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you knew the car was only going to last a few like days. No one would do that. Like, yeah. if you're, it's like, oh, there's, there's a very good chance that this is not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So it, it is, and it's not even just about the money, although that obviously factors in, um, but it's like, are we going to do this? And again, invest this emotional, uh, you know, th- there's an emotional toll to that. And are we going to do that if the outcome is, you know, pretty dire? So yeah, had the good news is, is that when I go and say, hey, the potential outcome here is quite good. We think this is worth doing that has been true for the cases that, yeah. um, that I've had. So, um, so they are, um, they're generally like fun cases to do. And it was, it was actually funny. I was on a, a work call with other veterinarians, other criticalists, and was talking about the fact that I had a, a baclofen toxicity case this week. And they were like, oh, those are so good because they're satisfying. And yeah, they do well. So it's, that is kind of the, the universal, like, oh, that's a fun case to do mechanical ventilation on because it's going to have a good outcome. Um, so, so they just yeah. need the medicine to go through its system. Or? Yeah. So this, this particular case. Oh, wait, um, I know what you do. You just dilute it out with water, right? <laughs> Very funny, Topher. Um, not at all. What are you doing, Kat? Um, so... We had a case, it was a young dog, like a seven month old dog that had, they don't exactly know how, um, the owner had put a bottle of the baclofen, which is a muscle relaxer on the counter. And they think one of the other dogs knocked it over and this dog, they don't really know, basically got home from work, set it down, um, and went to, you know, take a shower after work, came back, bottles missing. One of the dogs is looking very, very drunk. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, so that that dog clearly had gotten it. I mean, it had all the signs of baclofen toxicity, um, and it had it had gotten a pretty massive amount, the amount that would be fatal without care. Um, so that's the one point I want to make. A lot of people when they're looking up toxic doses of things, they're like, "Oh, this is." Um, you can look up either what's called the LD50, which is the lethal dose dose at which fifty percent of um, patients would expect to die, but you, that is without treatment. Like without any treatment, 50% would die. With treatment, that, that's very, very different. Um, you know, so just because uh, somebody ingested a lethal amount doesn't mean they will die. It means without treatment, there's a good chance they will die. So this dog definitely got a lethal amount and without treatment would have died. Um, What's the, the treatment for that? So the treatment for baclofen toxicity is time. Yeah, you just let it run through. Yeah, but the problem is, and the reason ventilation becomes important is that while the body, while it's in the system, so this is a a potent muscle relaxer. And if your muscles get relaxed too much, particularly the muscles you use to breathe, you don't breathe. Right. (laughs) So, um, so this dog would die because it wouldn't take breaths. Like that's what will kill it. And so, um, you die before your body has a chance to get rid of the drug. So what we do with mechanical ventilation is we breathe for the dog, um, to buy it time to process the drug and get excrete the drug from the body. Are there any other problems like in in a massive amount, yeah, it can because it, it, it can cause um you know low blood pressure in really, really high amounts. That's not the major issue. Um, so I don't really worry so much about that. And there's less of an it's really just things that are along with the muscle relaxation. So puts them in a coma, so you're comatose, and then when you're in a coma, other bad things can happen. You can aspirate because you're not guarding your airway. Like this dog didn't have a gag reflex. It wasn't swallowing appropriately. So it's at risk for that. It sounds similar to the like the neurological ones where yeah. they just 
it is a neurological bug. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's it, it is. It's just caused by a, a, a drug instead of caused by like a disease or something like mm. that. So um, yeah, it, this this dog fit. So there are three. We've talked about this before, I think, on the show. But there are three indications for mechanical ventilation. One is that the patient isn't oxygenating well enough despite supplementation. So you're giving them, you know, flow by oxygen, or you're putting them in an oxygen cage, you're giving them extra oxygen and it's still not enough. And so if you put them on a ventilator, we can use other strategies to improve oxygenation. So that's one crappy oxygenation despite um, care. The second one is hypoventilation or just not taking enough breath. So either that, um, usually these are neurologic. Um, so there's some reason that you can't, the, the patient cannot take a breath. And so we just have to do that for them. And then the third one is fatigue, which interestingly is usually combined with the other ones. Um, so one of the other ones usually leads to like, you're having a problem with, you're having to work too hard to take a breath and you get fatigued or you um, are working so hard to improve your oxygenation that you get fatigued. So that's the squishy one where it's, it's more yeah, it of a judgment call. Yeah, it doesn't seem like when would fatigue last long enough that you would need to put, if it was just fatigue, say you're working yeah. hard. So the analogy that I like to use, so you breathe all the time, mm-hmm. right? Like, But you're not breathing maximally all the time. Right. So like when you go for a run, you have to breathe more. So the analogy I like to use is like, if I had to walk, I can walk for a long time, right? Assuming, especially if somebody's bringing me like water and snacks and I can go to the bathroom, whatever, but I can keep walking, walking, walking. But now I have to run and I can't run for as long. I'm going to fatigue faster. Now I have to sprint. (laughs) I can't do that for very long. Like, so when normal, when you're breathing normally, it's, it's kind of akin to walking and you can do that for a very, very long time without much rest because you're, you're not having to expend as much energy. Um, but if you have to run, you can't do that for as long without resting depending on what kind of shape you're in, whatever. But then when you have to sprint, you really, you're using a lot more energy. And so when patients are having to increase the work of breathing, it's akin to running or sprinting, which you just can't sustain. You can't sustain that. Mm -hmm. So if a patient is having to work moderately hard, it's like running for a while and then you're going to tire faster and eventually your muscles will give out. Like you you can see videos. So it makes them need to breathe harder. Something's not working. Like say you have damage or disease in your lungs, you have pneumonia or something. And so gas exchange isn't very good. And so your body's like, oh, we should take more breaths. We should breathe faster. I should use other muscles so I can take a deeper breath. Um, And so those are muscles that aren't used to being used all the time. So more energy, more blood flow is going to those muscles. So you're having to use more effort um to breathe and and you can do that for a little while right like you can you can you know walk at a fast pace or you can mm-hmm. jog for quite a while um, but if that's not working and, and you know that problem isn't being reversed then you can't sustain that forever so um you know so there's degrees um it, it you know you can take on different strategies and uh as a you know when you're breathing and i'm going to breathe like this it's going to be more efficient and, and you'll see that with chronic diseases but when it becomes more severe the you know so it's kind of on a scale um the harder you have to work the less long you can do that for essentially yeah does that make sense mm-hmm. i was trying to th- i didn't know what would cause you to be fatigued or breathing other than yeah than like your body being fatigued. No, it's so whatever's forcing you to run, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. So the bear that is chasing you. Because so I would think it's like, oh, you're tired from doing something. You just 
stop doing yeah, that thing. But you and can't, then if you stop doing that thing, recover. you don't have enough oxygen and you die. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a pretty strong motivator to work harder to breathe because not doing, like you have signals yeah, in your body. I just didn't know there was something that made the, the yeah. breathing harder. Because yeah. I think it's like, oh, like if you're sprinting, you start to see like sparks and flies in your eyes. Yeah. And then you, you stop, stop and then you're fine in a couple so, of So yeah, but this is what will happen with patients that have respiratory distress because they'll get exhausted. And this is the, these are the ones that, you know, this patient needs a ventilator. So they are um, usually like when I see them, they're in an oxygen cage because we're trying to provide supplemental oxygen because we're like, wow, this patient's in trouble and you're giving them the extra oxygen and they're kind of swaying and they just look, they look like a person who's been up for 36 hours and is trying to stay awake and they just can't. And like, they kind of <laughs> nod like their head. Kind of nods, yeah, their head kind of nods off, but then they like jerk awake because if they fall asleep, they won't breathe enough to stay alive. Um, so if it'd be, it, you know, I'll use this analogy too. So you're running and if you stop running, you die. Like there's a bear chasing you or whatever, something, somebody's chasing you. And if you stop running, you will die. That's a pretty good motivator to keep running. But you still, even with that, you can't do it forever eventually you're going to slow down or stop or collapse. And, you know, you can go online and watch videos of people like running marathons and they get to the end and they just collapse. Yeah. They physically cannot do it anymore. And eventually your diaphragm will do the same thing. Like your body is just like, I want to, the drive is there. I really want to not die, but I can't. There physically just isn't anything left. And so those are the patients that we try to anticipate before they get to that point um, to give them a break. So that's allowing them to stop sprinting. Um, because now I can, I'm carrying you essentially in this analogy. Um, so th those are the trickiest ones, but you do, you look at a patient who's working really hard and they do, they look exhausted. Um, you need to help that patient out. But the, this patient was, <laughs> didn't, was in a coma. <laughs> so, um, wasn't necessarily experiencing the exhaustion, but still like, so we measure on a blood gas and we see the, the carbon dioxide in the blood is too high. So we need to breathe for that patient. Um, so yeah, so that I remember you talking about when they called the middle of the night when it initially came in. Yeah, and that was the thing. Initially, you asked. the CO two was okay. Yeah, it was like okay, like let's you know let's try to. We gave it some lipids to see if that could help. Um, you know, get rid of some of the baclofen a little faster. It didn't. I it guess didn't you did really go in the middle of the night to yeah to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it was about eleven thirty years. Yeah, ago. I didn't know you had actually gone and hooked it up. I thought you had just gone and done other doctor stuff. Oh. And then uh, someone that I work with the next day that kind of works with you was like, "Oh, they got one on the ventilator," and I just thought he was an idiot. Oh, but it turns out he was right. <laughs> he was right. Well, you were just you were sleeping mostly, so yeah. you probably weren't paying that much of attention. But yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's the reason I went in was to put it on the ventilator um, because the other stuff I could just tell people like, Hey, do this, do this. But putting it on the ventilator is something that, um, is fairly specialized. Um, not that like other people can't learn to do it, but you have to learn how to do it. And that's what you do during an ECC residence. So what are the tough parts of setting it up? Um, well, one is just knowing the equipment and getting everything set up. Um, that's pretty easy though. Like you can train yeah, somebody. I, I guess I think of like the, it's choosing the difficult the thing is like, you don't want to pop the animal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's choosing the settings that are the safest for the lungs that accomplish what you want to accomplish. And for the neurologic patients, those are the easiest. So, um, ventilation there are. Yeah. Cause there's nothing wrong with the lungs. It right. Has healthy. Exactly. Lungs. Exactly. So you can, you have a little bit more leeway, but the, the main thing you have to remember is with mechanical and ventilation, 
This is positive pressure ventilation, which is not how you normally breathe. You normally breathe by contracting your diaphragm, expanding the volume in your chest, so increasing the volume, which generates, um, it decreases the pressure because P1V1 equals P2V2. And so by increasing the volume, you decrease the pressure and it falls uh, lower than atmospheric pressure and air will flow in. But what we're doing with mechanical ventilation is we are giving a positive pressure breath. So we are essentially blowing air into the lungs. So that's not how you breathe normally, but that's how we have to do it. Although there is, um, there are uh, uh, some of the, like an early, you can look online of the, um, there's negative pressure ventilators where you put somebody in like a chamber, an entire chamber. Yeah. In gener- it's kind of cool. The iron lung. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't do that anymore. So we give positive pressure breaths. So step one, it's already not a natural way to breathe. Um, and there are risks with this. So the other thing to remind people with ventilation is it doesn't treat anything. It just buys you time. Um, it, you can do a little, you know, this is supportive care. We are trying to improve gas exchange until whatever underlying disease that's preventing gas exchange from being appropriate can be fixed. And so in this situation, the patient's not taking enough breath. So there's too much CO2 building up and then not enough oxygen going in. Um, And so we just need to give breaths. But the ventilator can give breaths in different ways. So it's all going to be positive pressure, but like we decide um, which settings we want to use. Do we want that pressure to be delivered? Or sorry, do we want that breath to be delivered to a preset pressure? So I want you to give a breath until you reach this pressure and then, you know, stop giving the breath. Or do I want it to be volume delivered? So How I'm does gonna, it measure the pressure? Does it do just like an It's got internal sensor pressure on the valve or is it uh, like a relative pressure to like the animal? No, it's going to be an absolute pressure mm-hmm. in the system um, yeah. based on, yeah, what's happening in the patient's lungs. So like the lung compliance can change over time. Yeah. And so it, every breath, it's constantly sensing the pressure in the system. Um, so it knows what the pressure and the compliance of the tubing and everything that it's got. And so the patient is the one variable right. um, that will change. And so it's measuring the pressure constantly. Um, and then the volume is pretty easy um, to deliver. This is the volume that you're going to yeah. deliver. And so those are the two ways that you can deliver breaths. Is Do you to have to change pressure. that for like the animal size? Yeah. So basically like I calculate. Like a needs less volume than a Great Dane. Yeah, exactly. And so what I do is I get the patient's weight and then I decide what is the... I won't do that anymore. What is the um, tidal volume that I want it to deliver? So um, for most... What does tidal volume mean? Tidal volume is the volume of air in one breath. Okay. Um, Why do they call it tidal? Just is. I don't know. Because it's like the tides goes in and out, in and oh, out. Oh, tidal. T-I-D-A-L. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking tidal. Like, tidal. Is that what in tidal <laughs> CO2 t- is? Is it with a D? Oh, yeah, it is. Okay, it is. I always thought it was with two Ts that... T-I-T-L-E. title. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I don't no. know anything about your doctor stuff. I know, but I just it's funny to me. That yeah, title, that makes sense. That. Yeah, so like the tides. Um, That's hilarious that you have been thinking end title. It's yeah. the end, like the end credits. <laughs> end, I don't know. Okay. Um, so yeah, title. So title volume, the volume of one breath, essentially. Cool. It gets a little more complicated than that, but essentially that's what it is. So is there's lots of different measurements and you're like, okay, well, is this not all of the air that you breathe gets to part of the lungs that um, is involved in gas exchange. So there's a fair bit of what's called dead space, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but I get to decide and I tell the machine, this is how big of a breath I want you to deliver. Um, and usually for lung, what are considered lung protective strategies, it's typically a, a fairly low tidal volume. 
And you don't worry about it as much in a patient with healthy lungs, but you still want to be mindful of that. And the reason that low tidal volume is better, is generally safer for the lungs, is that when, you, especially when you have lung disease, lung disease isn't homogenous. Like it's not like every alveolus in the lung has right, equal yeah. amount of injury. And so when there is injury to certain parts of the lung, like some alveoli would really like a high volume, high pressure um, to open them up and others you're going to like distend them. But when you are delivering a positive pressure breath, everything is going to just take the path of least resistance, right? And so if there's more resistance in this part of the lung, and less in another, then the the volume that you're delivering is going to go to the area of least resistance over the other area. And so what you can do is you cannot be delivering enough air to one part of the lung because it's damaged and has high resistance, and then you're over distending another part of it. And so that heterogeneity of the lung disease, again, this is more in patients with bad lungs, I'm not in That'd healthy be interesting, lungs. like a I don't know how it works. So I know like the water filling concept with that. Uh -huh. Like if you have a, a small jar here and a big jar here, they fill up. But I wonder if you did that with balloons and you had a thinner balloon and a thick balloon. If you mm. like put pressure through all of them, would they all expand? expand or would one of them pop before one was done expanding. So the lungs That'd don't necessarily pop, I just think, like, but they the do become over distended. Yeah. yeah. And you probably, it probably is what would happen. Like if you created them that way, you'd say there's more resistance over here. Um, the air is going to flow, but like to what degree? So even if it doesn't pop, it's still going to distend it and cause damage to those tissues. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that's been shown in many studies in, in, um, laboratory settings and then also been shown clinically. And so what you can do, there's different ways that you can avoid this. Um, and, and again, there's pros and cons with these and it doesn't mean everything is perfect, but that, um, so I, but essentially I pick a title volume for this patient. I say, this is the title volume I want you to start with. And usually it's on the, I mean, it's lower than we, it's than that patient probably would take, um, but higher than I would typically do for like a patient with real bad lungs. Um, and then I choose the, how many breaths I want it to give to the patient. And then we're going to have to adjust up or down because if the minute ventilation is too low, then it won't be enough breaths. Um, the minute ventilation being the tidal volume times the number of breaths, the respiratory rate. So in one minute, how much gas exchange is happening essentially. Um, and then adjust. And then I adjust to, you know, until I get the, the values where I want them to be. So how does it do the, the pressure for the breath? Does it, is like the pressure you pick is at the, so is it like a, cause it, I don't imagine it delivers the same pressure the whole time. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so probably, the flow, it will adjust the flow, right? Is that where the title thing comes like, like the, the higher, the, the title, the more constant, the pressure that you put in is? Actually, that it's a really good point. So the way the breaths are delivered are very different between a volume delivered breath and a pressure delivered breath. And so in a in a volume delivered breath, the flow is constant. So it's just like constantly at you know two liters per minute. That way I just made that number up. But it's just going to go blah 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 until you get to the predetermined volume, and then it's going to be like okay, we're going to stop and allow you to exhale. When it's pressure delivered. What you do is you quickly, so you have high flow, so really, really fast, and you boom, quickly get the pressure up to where you want it, and then you slowly decrease the flow and the pressure. You kind of maintain it, actually, at that point. Um, so if you look at the shape of the pressure on a graph, mm -hmm. it will kind of plateau. So you get the pressure up really quickly, high pressure to whatever your predetermined setting is. And we do that based on what we know physiologically is appropriate. Um, like we try to keep it under that. So you say, okay, I'm going to deliver a breath to 15 um, centimeters of water. 
okay, boom, it's going to quickly shoot the flow up really fast to get to that pressure. And then it's going to maintain that flow for a little bit to give me a flat, relatively flat. It's going to dip down a little bit um, for the rest of the breath. And that is actually more like how we breathe. Um, again, it's not positive pressure, but we very quickly get the air in and then we kind of hold it and not really hold it, but we start to exhale. So we spend a lot more time in in, uh, in exhalation than we do in inhalation. And so a pressure delivered breath is is kind of closer to how we breathe physiologically in as far as how quickly the air gets in. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's really hard to, I'm like, I can see it on the graphs, but it's harder to explain. Whereas a volume delivered breath, the pressure slowly gets up, gets up, and then it hits a peak and then it slowly drops back down again. So it's more of a, uh, like a, a mountain peak rather than a plateau if it's volume delivered. So the flow will be constant versus rapidly high flow, like very quickly getting up there. So those are um, some of the pros and cons. Those are the, the advantage of a pressure-delivered breath, setting it to a predetermined pressure, is that it is a more physiologic breath. And, and a lot of times the patients like it. I put like in air quotes, like it better. They're usually in a coma, whether it's on their own <laughs> or if it's a medically induced coma so that they'll tolerate the, the settings. But even with that, like the brainstem is still working and it's like, give me a breath, give me a breath. And so patients will kind of, we say they'll buck the ventilator, they'll fight the ventilator because they're, they're not getting the breath as quickly as they want it. Um, and so pressure delivered breaths are a little bit better in that regard, but depending on how you do your settings, if you deliver too high of a tidal volume, because you're choosing your settings based on pressure, not based on volume, you can damage some of the lungs. So now all of these interact with each other, right? So if I choose a predetermined pressure, the compliance of that patient's lung will determine what the volume is. And if I want to reduce the volume, I can reduce the pressure or vice versa. Um, whereas with volume delivered breaths, I'm going to say, this is the volume I want. What pressure is it going to reach? The other thing that you'll do with the machine is you will set limits. So because I don't necessarily know when I first put the patient on the ventilator, what the compliance of the lungs are. So I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to give a volume delivered breath and I want you to deliver to this tidal volume. But if you reach this pressure before you get that, you need to shut this off. Like that's, that's too high. So you put limits on what the machine will do um, so that the settings you choose don't cause more damage. So if I say I'm going to deliver to this pressure, but if the volume is going to exceed this, then you have to shut that breath off. And then you adjust from there. And this is where this is where I come in, right? This is where the criticalist comes in is how do you choose settings that are going to be safe for the patient provide what the patient needs without causing more damage. Um, so right, choosing it's not setting. just a chart. No, it's a little bit more complicated. And again, all of our patients are different sizes. The reasons they're on the ventilator yeah, probably are probably much easier if they're all the same size. Oh yeah. And th the ventilators have gotten pretty fancy to be honest. And so they will, oh, yeah, you could set up a computer that could do. Yeah. And they have that. They have them where they will like automatically adjust, um, they're probably, I don't know, I don't know how expensive those are, but they've, they're definitely a lot better than the older um, ventilators used to be. Some of them didn't even have screens with waveforms and stuff. So there's a lot that, that we get a lot of information from the ventilator as well to tell us like what's going on with the patient, what's working, what's not working. Um, so, but one of the things that you learn um, like during your residency, if you're going to do these kinds of things is how to troubleshoot as well. Because again, these are positive pressure breaths, so we can cause problems. Um, and depending on how things go with the patient's disease, how things go with our settings, we can cause issues. We can, um, you know, and then the body responds because you've got tubes in that you're not supposed to. You, um, you're bypassing the natural humidification system. So we have to humidify the air, but 
Again, we're never as good as nature. And so sometimes the airways can dry out and they get a buildup of crud and extra mucus and there's no mechanism for coughing anymore because now the patient has a tube in their airway and we're not allowing that. There's there's all sorts of things. So we have to manage that. The air, like do you choose the amount of oxygen? Yeah, actually. Like, yep. <laughs> like, a, like a dust moat, I could see. Yeah. It just gets so, blown in there. So we have, there up. are two... Um, gases that we hook the machine up to traditionally. So one is pure oxygen and the other one is called medical air, um, which is filtered air essentially. So rather than just the air that you breathe, it's not necessarily sterilized, but it is filtered to try to reduce some of the the crud that you would breathe and, and gets trapped in your nose hairs on a daily basis and causes all your boogers. So this what patient, type of filter is it like a big, I, oh, I, I saw know. when they took no out idea. the compressor for yours. I, I saw no what idea. that looked like, but I never saw the filter system. I don't know. It's on the no, inside. No. It's on the inside of the big compressor, and I trust <laughs> that it's appropriate. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a medical. Oh, so the compressor engineer. is like a. It's an, a specific one for medical. Yeah, air. it's yeah, like it is a medical grade air compressor. You can't just put any. I mean, I'm sure the mechanics of it are the same. Yeah, I would have thought it would have been but, a, have an air compressor and then you attach a filter to it. Uh, I don't think so. No, yeah. I think it's a special because there also has to be like d- additional safety features on it too. Because if the pressure suddenly is like, oh, well, this isn't the right pressure we just blew out a patient's lungs like yeah. literally um and then it has to be like special inspections and things like that so i, I don't i'm not a compressor engineer but mm-hmm. um and i didn't i didn't i wasn't there for the installation but no you can't just go and buy like air compressor at home depot and then hook it up to a fancy filter like it there's a whole system to it um but so what what that does is that's going to blend you, the machines have their internal blenders where i say okay i want normally when we're breathing air, it's about 21%, 20.98% oxygen. And the rest is mostly nitrogen and then a couple percentage points or fractions of percentage points of other gases. And what I can do on the machine is say, okay, I want you to give 40% of the um, the mixture is going to be oxygen or 50 per, or 100%. And usually when we first put a patient on, we'll do 100%, but very quickly we'll get them down um, to a much more reasonable number. Um, if the patient has bad lungs, um, unhealthy lungs, then um, you know they often do need extra oxygen, so a higher percentage than you breathe in room air. Patients with neurologic disease often don't. So I had, I had the patient um, down to 25%, um, you know, Honestly, it could have been 21%. That just seemed like a fun number. Um, and so it was essentially room air for um, most of the time uh, she was on the machine. And But I still started her at higher just because you're like, eh, until we get things settled, I want to make sure she's getting plenty of oxygen. So it's pretty routine to start at 100% oxygen when you first hook them up. But like within a few minutes, I'm dropping them down to 80% really quickly. And if they're doing well with that, 60%. I try to get them down to 60% ideally within you know half an hour, if not fast. Um, because we can get oxygen toxicity and nitrogen washout and there's pro- that's a whole nother podcast but yeah we've talked about that before okay cool so see it's a whole you should listen to that podcast <laughs> what number was it Tover? Uh, i think it's one of the vet book ones yeah was, did we already talk about that okay maybe. i'm pretty sure cool i don't remember i talk too much so yeah you talked about something like things. the the alveoli needed nitrogen yeah and or also the nitrogen skeleton limp. yeah that this the nitrogen skeleton kind of yeah. stents them open and the oxygen doesn't yeah, see do that very well so smart um, remembering stuff what was it gonna oh um is it possible to do it through like the nose you're talking about like the humidification like, could you do 
ventilation through the nose just like what you don't get is a very good seal so the tube that we put in goes to the back of their mouth down into the trachea and then there's a little balloon a cuff that you inflate Mm -hmm. to create that seal and if you don't have the seal all the air is just going to kind of leak around and then you won't be able to generate the pressure because again we're trying to generate a positive pressure breath i guess it would probably be a lot it'd be a tougher pressure doing it through a a thinner tube you can do it well, what what you're talking about, and they will do this in people, is um, it's called CPAP. So um, continuous yeah. positive airway pressure, just like when people that have the- That's what um, I was thinking of. Yeah. The problem is getting one. So if you picture like a dog's face and their nose, and if you put a mask over their nose, you still got um, a gap where their lips are because their nose is so long, their snout is so long. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to have one that would completely cover their mouth and nose, um, which is going to be harder. And you'd have to have a lot of different shapes and sizes. And there is one um, that has been developed that's more like an old timey astronaut. Yeah, that's or kind of what old-timey, I was thinking of. Yeah, or an old timey scuba diver's um, uh, head helmet type thing. Um, that, but the you know somebody's got to tolerate that, and yeah. um, so and then you're just generating pressure to the whole head instead of just like the nose and mouth. So and the other thing that will happen with long term, like if you have a patient say this animal um, had a drug that was going to be in the system for a month. And that that can happen, actually. So animals that have a gene mutation in the brain, um, like Shelties and Collies, um, they have an MDR1 gene mutation. And we've probably talked about that before, where they... they um, they don't process drugs to the brain properly. And so they can get something like ivermectin toxicity that stays in their system for a long time. I don't think we've talked about it. Oh, maybe not then. Mm-mm. Okay. Well, we'll have to talk about that sometime. Um, but um, it, basically, it could they may, might have to be on the ventilator for weeks. And if that's, <laughs> that's the a case, bad dog to have the ivermectin thing, because they're, aren't they? They're like sheep dogs, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where you see. Yep. You'd have to be, you have to be extra careful. We had, I had one years ago where it was, it was uh, an Australian shepherd and uh, actually just ate horse manure and horses that had yeah. been recently dewormed and got ivermectin, but because she had the mutation, it was in her system for a very long time. Uh, so she was on the ventilator for a few weeks. Um, but when that happens, what you can sometimes do is put an, uh, a, tr- a temporary tracheostomy tube and then hook the ventilator up to that. And then their mouth is available and they can eat and they can do other things. And so they'll do that in people as well for long-term ventilators where they just do a, a temporary um, tracheostomy or tracheotomy. And then they can do other things and it, it's a little bit nicer. It's not super common, um, but something something to be aware of so yeah you just need a, a seal uh you need to be able to deliver the the pressure the breath under enough pressure that you so you have to have a seal um and intubation is typically how we're going to do that that works best but they got to be in a coma so that's eh, mm-hmm. a trade-off um yeah what other i don't know then weaning them off the ventilator is always the fun part so a couple things that people don't often think about is when we are doing the work of breathing that patient is getting a rest, which is great, but your muscles for breathing aren't used to not doing things. Like, and so they atrophy pretty quickly. If you're not using your diaphragm, if you're not using your intercostal muscles and all your muscles for breathing, they, they kind of go, oh, you don't need me? Fine, we'll give up and we'll put our energy elsewhere. This is especially fast if you have to use paralytics while they're, sometimes we have to, not usually when they're neurologic, but patients that aren't tolerating our ventilator settings because they're like, I need more air. And you're like, too bad. More air will kill you. And you have to paralyze them so they don't fight the ventilator. They're always sedated. But um, 
that's a thing, then that can really cause muscle atrophy really quickly of your breathing muscles. So that when you are ready, like whatever the underlying disease is, and then you go to take them off the ventilator and they're like, but my muscles don't work anymore because I haven't had to use them. And it happens faster than you think. So what we like to do when they're on the ventilator is give them opportunities to quote unquote exercise where they have to do some of the work of breathing. Sometimes that's just involves taking them off the ventilator for half an hour or a couple hours, depending on if that's something that's possible. Um, and so one thing, whenever I have patients like this that go on the ventilator and I'm going to try to take them off, I warn them, hey, your, your dog, your cat might have to immediately or very soon go back on the ventilator. And I don't want you to take that as a sign that this has failed. That's actually not uncommon um, that we try it and it goes okay for like an hour or two. And you're like, okay, we're going back down and we have to go back on. But that was still good exercise. That was good um, use of the muscles for a bit. And if we have to go back on and then try again tomorrow, that's totally fine. Can um, the machine do it while it's still... Yes, to in. a degree. So um, the most common setting that I will use is called SIMV or synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation. Um, synchronized meaning the machine tries to, to mat, uh, match up the breaths it delivers with what the patient wants. And I'll explain what patient wants means in a second. Um, intermittent um, just means intermittent. I don't know every once in a while, um, <laughs> mandatory ventilation, meaning that the machine will say, you have to take this number of breaths. But the intermittent or the synchronized part means that that patient can also trigger to take its own breaths and the, and the machine will support that depending on how much support I tell the machine to give that patient. Um, so I can set the respiratory rate to be kind of low if I know that the patient should be able to trigger their own breaths. And then I tell the machine, hey, if the patient um, can generate flow in the opposite direction of this amount, that means he wants a breath and you should help him with that. Or if the patient can generate negative pressure to a certain degree, that means he's trying to take a breath and I want you to help him out with that. Um, and so, and we did that with this patient this week as well. Um, once she was doing better and I was like, I think there's a chance that she might try to take her own breaths. I'm going to turn the settings down a little bit and try to give her, but she has to work. And it's actually kind of hard because now you're breathing against this whole apparatus. So it's actually harder than even taking a normal breath, but the machine will still support her through that. She just has to, to do a little bit of work. Um, so you can allow them to breathe some on their own. And there are other settings where, um, there, there's supported breaths and there's assisted breaths and there's all these different um, criteria. But, um, so you, again, that's what you do as the, to, when you're making the decisions about what is appropriate for this patient in this time. So there's a lot of things to keep track of. And again, it takes that's years. That's why you need a specialist. It, exactly. It takes years, um, in a residency managing lots of cases and being exposed to lots of things. And, and then, Honestly, even like I got good experience during my residency, but you obviously get more and more over time. The more cases you see and you learn, you learn other um, techniques, new information comes out, new research comes out. A lot of the stuff about, you know, lung protective strategies has evolved over the years. And so, you know, you have you to keep up with that. Bites in Florida. All the snake bites, those were again good ones because those are neurologic, right? So those are usually short term and once the venom gets out of the system, they'll do well. It's the it's the lung ones that are tough. So like I've had a couple of, a couple of those, like I said, that have gone well. One was a, a drowned dog um, who did great. The other one was a, a iatrogenic fluid overload transferred to us from another facility. It was an accidental fluid overload during a dental. Um, and that one, again, did well initially and then died for some unknown reason. Um, like six hours after doing great, everybody was like, oh my God, the dog looks great. Everything's fine. And somebody was like, the dog just died. I was like, what are you talking about? So that one was weird. Um, but those were lung cases where you had to, I had to choose those more lung protective strategies while the underlying disease process was being resolved. So yeah, it, it, it is a lot. It's fun though. Um, these, these can be really fun. And, uh, the, 
knowing the physiology of the lungs is really important for, for I think, being able to troubleshoot. You really have to understand how the lungs work um, kind of on a macro level, like on a larger level, what's happening with, you know, movement of air and things like that, but also on the the smaller level, like at the level of the alveolus, the small little air sacs, what's, what's happening with them, what's protecting them, what's harming them, and how do we, um, you know, manipulate our settings to, to do that. So having a good understanding of respiratory physiology is really a prerequisite before trying to, I think, manage uh, mechanical ventilator settings and making choices about that. And that's one of the one of the big things that I think you learn during uh, an ECC residency. And this is, this is really kind of our big thing. This is like the, the unique thing that critical care does that really nobody else in veterinary medicine does. Who did it before there were you guys? I don't know. Probably nobody. They probably just died. Yeah. Um, well, because mechanical ventilation hasn't been around forever anyway, oh, like in human medicine. Right. So, um, I guess been, if I were to guess like 80 years, let's, I don't know. Let's Google it. So, I mean, again, the iron lung is pretty old. I don't remember exactly. I'm not a medical historian. I'm not very good at this. So, um, let's see. First, mechanical ventilators. Yeah, I guess a compressor really hasn't been around that long, like a mechanical compressor. Let's see. It's probably going to tell me the iron lung. Yeah, when was Ooh, the tank ventilator was first described by the Scottish physician John Dalziel in 1838, but it was described. I don't know if it was used. Um, mechanical ventilators, negative pressure ventilation was first in the early 1800s. The pole, pole motor, an early device for positive pressure ventilation was introduced in 1907 by a German businessman. <laughs> yeah, um, let's see the first scroll. modern mechanical ventilator. Let's see what that, I don't know if that's going to be the right thing to search, but uh, all right, this is going to be too hard to figure out. We'll have to, we'll have to do another podcast on the history of mechanical ventilation. Yeah. Um, in veterinary medicine though, cause you also, these are really expensive, right? These machines are, and to have the facilities to do it. So it was going to be much later in veterinary medicine. Now we had like anesthetic ventilators where it was just bellows, right? And people use that, but to have the more advanced with all the fancy settings to be able to decide like, is it going to be volume controlled or pressure controlled? And what's the flow going to be? And you that can That little like pump sack that you see yeah. people, that's- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's essentially a ventilator. Yeah, no, it is a ventilator. And again, the the bellows in the anesthetic ventilators work perfectly for when you're just like, just deliver this amount, like just do this. And you can set them, they're, they're just a lot simpler. Yeah, um, they wouldn't which, be as adjustable. Right, they're not. They're not as adjustable. And, but for patients that are under anesthesia that have normal lungs, it's fine. Um, but again, if it, it gets more complicated, that's what we call them long-term mechanical ventilators. That's really, it doesn't mean months and years. It means longer than an anesthetic event um, is typically how I think about it anyway. Um, but yeah, the the ventilation. So actually anesthesiologists are probably who would have been doing it if criticalists weren't. I mean, that's who's going to be most capable mm -hmm. of it, I would think. Um, but they're usually, they're not using the type of machine. And so they just haven't really, they, they're going to understand the lung physiology pretty well. Um, and probably could, I, I could imagine teaching a, uh, an anesthesiologist to use mechanical ventilator more quickly and easily than any other specialist. They're going to have the requisite kind of foundational knowledge better than anyone else I would guess. And then they're going to be using the anesthetic ventilators. And so they have that basic concepts down. It's just playing with the, the subtle settings and understanding <clears throat> the, 
lung protective strategies and like what's the research that's come out on this. But yeah, so probably that. I was surprised the the way you described the waves that there's not like a a fancier waveform for it. There it sounds are like it's some. just like essentially just like a box wave. Yeah, is pretty what much. You described. Yeah. But there are some there are actually some cool um, not commonly used um, options for mechanical ventilation. So one of them is called high frequency oscillatory ventilation where you're essentially just vibrating. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Find, like a resonance. Yeah. And it's amazing. And how you can adjust that and get the gap. Cause you're just like, wait, but so there's no tidal breathing. Yeah. There isn't, it's like, there isn't a tidal volume cause that's not what you're doing, but it works and it's pretty cool, but it like, it's very disturbing for people. So um, it actually works fairly well in like infants, neonates. Yeah. I think it'd be safer. It is. It, it's, it's actually really good. And there's some research out there that there's some, uh, some serious advantages to it, but I think it's also very distressing because like parents would have their infants on a ventilator and their chest isn't moving like it's vibrating, but they're not expanding. And it's like, my, yeah. ba- my baby's not breathing. It's like, no, it's not, but it's getting yeah. the gas exchange it needs. Yeah, so but you can't like, if you think about it, you can't breathe like that because it would be exhausting to breathe like that. But well, a machine machine's doing it. Yeah. The machine doesn't have yeah. a problem with getting exhausted. Yeah. So it, no, it's, it's actually not an a better issue. way to breathe. No. And it is. And it's a very, it's, it's pretty safe and it's very gentle on the lungs and it's pretty cool. I got to during yeah, it's my like residency those, uh, things that wash your glasses. Yeah. Yeah. During my residency, um, we had, cause I was at North Carolina and Duke university is right there and they've got the medical school and they had some researchers and we got to, um, kind of work with some of the folks in the respiratory um, system. And one of my, my mentors like had built some relationships up with the physicians there. And there was a respiratory therapist. We went one day and they had, um, they were doing some research and they had a pig hooked up to their high frequency oscillatory ventila- ventilator. And so we got to like see it in action. How it was so cool. Like it was so very cool um, to be able to see. And they actually had um, part of the the chest exposed so you could like see the actual lung and what it was doing. And it's just like vibrating and you're watching the gases and you're like, yep, gas is exchanging. Like it was really cool. So that's one of the things that people have done differently with mechanical ventilation. It hasn't really taken on for most circumstances, but there's some, it gets used now and then. And then the other one is, um, is Heliox. So it's a mixture of helium and oxygen. And there's a few circumstances where that can be beneficial. So people have played around a little bit, but Mostly it's just making the software for the ventilators better. And so that, you know, it's sensing things better and it's recognizing things earlier and it's kind of like idiot proofing the machines. Yeah. You you want all the feedback sensors. Exactly. Exactly. And it just like tells you what to do to some degree. Um, You still have to be able to interpret like what's happening here and what treatment should I apply? Like, okay, this patient might need a bronchodilator because we're getting more bronchoconstriction or um, this patient, there's, uh, there's maybe a leak somewhere and do I have to figure out where the leak is it outside the machine? Is it in the patient? Is there a pneumothorax? Like what do I have to do with this? So the, and, and, one of the things, again, one of the other things you learn um, when you're training for this is how to interpret the waveforms and, and what to do with that information. So when you look at the pressure um, or the loops, so there's different pressure volume loops, flow volume, pressure flow loops, and you can say, oh, that one's, you know, like it's, we'll call it it's beaking, or this one is flattening too soon, or this one is blah, blah, blah. And then you can look at that and, and interpret and say, okay, based on what's happening in the loop, the feedback that the machine is getting from the patient this is the likely cause for that. And then I, you know, make adjustments from there. It's funny the way you just described it there. um, There was one person in our gym. He was telling us like how um, on the rowing machine, Mm -hmm. like how you wanted to get like an optimal stroke. There's a a setting on it where you pull it and it shows you the wave of the power stroke. It sounds just like that. Probably is. He's like, yeah, you want to get it to like spike real high and then like eased out. And Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, but that is when you get the feedback from the machine. Like a rowing machine, it is like 
a breath is like a stroke yeah, kind on of. that. The, a normal breath is where it's like very quickly and then just kind of ease out of it. Yeah. yeah. In, in, inhalation, whoosh, quickly. Exhalation, long and slow. Yeah. It's just like that. We'll start using that. Um, and when I train residents, I'll be like, all right, I I'm going to get you on the rowing machine. Yeah. And I want you to watch. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It probably help people it might, make sense. It might help people make sense of it. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. Something um, that you can actually do. And you could feel like, like yeah, because there's the, the how many strokes per minute you do. It's like, yeah, how many do, calories you do, are you do burning? 20, or, then yeah. you can do, you have to pull harder. Yeah. But if you do your tidal volume, yeah. If you do like, do that oscillating thing. Ones. Do it up. Doom, 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 doom. Yeah. 500 times a minute. You don't have to pull that hard. You <laughs> yeah, just have to be able to go 500, 500 times. times a minute. Or a second. Uh, Is it a second? It'd be a minute. Yeah, strokes a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that that's um, the week I had. Got the patient off the ventilator, sent it home this morning, actually. Whoop, whoop. Yay, yeah, the dog was doing great. So it came off the ventilator if after like 36 hours, I think is what it was. Um, and then was like neurologically inappropriate still for a bit, which could have been residual, like not the drug still in the system, but just the effects of the drug. Could have also been some hypoxia before the dog got um, got to us and got on the ventilator. Um, and then uh, it was funny because everybody's like, ah, they're worried about this and the right. I was like, just chill, just give this dog some time. And it's funny how like experience just gives you that confidence to be like, Yes, the dog looks weird right now, but like, because I'm like, oh my God, she looks amazing. And everybody's like, what is wrong with you? You're a terrible doctor. <laughs> she doesn't look amazing. I'm like, no, she looks like for what she should look like, she looks amazing. And tomorrow she's going to look even better. And everybody's like, okay. And then tomorrow, oh, like, that oh. was the thing you were talking about too, like how to tell clients what's going on. It's like you say, oh, this oh. dog looks amazing. Oh, yeah. You can't tell the client that because it doesn't exactly. Actually you have to like couch it. it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, so. I am very pleased with the progress that we are making with your pet. Like she's still not normal. He, we've still got a ways to go, but like this is going well. Um, this is, it's happening exactly how I want it to. I haven't had any setbacks. Um, but yeah, you do have to be a little careful in the wording you use. Like things are going great. While that is true. And I know what I mean when I say that's going great. If I say things are going great and the clients are like, yeah, they come to perfect. see it and the dog's not even moving. And you're like, what do you mean this was great? I thought you said my dog was doing great. I was like, it is doing great. They're like, this isn't great. You know? So you do have to be mindful, especially when you're using kind of, um, like interpretations of that because I'm like, yeah, I'm super pleased with how this, and, and I was when I was talking to the client, I'm like, I'm very happy with how things are going. Here's literally what's happening, but these are all good things like this tomorrow. It's going to be like this and tomorrow. Um, and that, that's probably, that's probably the coolest thing that you, you get with experience and with time <clears throat> and extra training is you get the ability to predict the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> accurately um and like people are skeptical and then they see it happen they're like holy crap you were right and you're like i know and it's not that i'm like amazed but it's like this is what happens like i've seen it over time and time again and this is what's gonna happen yeah, like this dog is gonna look terrible out of nowhere <laughs> yeah but you're not it's not out of nowhere it's they like used i've to seen say it michael share would do that he's like oh yeah. yeah i had this uh 30 years ago a dog came in just like this blah, 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 blah. yeah and you do but the more cases you've seen and the more now you get to do that i get to do a little bit of that not quite as much as he does but um but again, when you've seen three, four, five cases just like this, and then you can be like, yeah, they all kind of follow the same pattern and it's pretty awesome. And, um, and so over time people, even when they've seen you say that about other stuff, they're still just like, I'm skeptical because this is what I'm seeing right now with my own eyes. This looks terrible. I'm like, this is great. They're like, this is terrible. I'm like, nope, it's great. Um, and then the next day they're like, wow, that's way better. I'm like, I know. 
<laughs> and then the next day it's even better. I know. So it was really, it was a good learning experience for a lot of people to see. One, a lot of people get this idea of mechanical ventilation is going to be terrible. Like it's not going to go well. You're like, no, it, it can go great. Um, the nurses yeah, have been doing it on fantastic. Like the sickest patients. Yeah. These Again, patients would this die dog would it. have died without it. It yeah. would have died without it. But, and you know, the, the client was also asking like, what about long-term? I'm like, honestly, there, I don't expect any long-term issues. Your dog's going to do fine. Um, and, and it's really, cause it seems really scary and like, it shouldn't be. It's like, nope, this is, it's going to do fine. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so the only yeah, long-term issues is you now have a dog that eats pill bottles <laughs> and she has not learned her lesson and will do it again. So you have to learn from that. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things. Um, it's when people think that, okay, she, she won't do this again. She'll know, but nope. Um, they didn't think that they were like, nope, we've already, we've rearranged. And most of the time people are like, nope, everything in the house has changed. We have a different system. We've learned. We don't want this to happen again. It's a, it's a scary lesson to learn. It's expensive, but the scariest thing is like, you might lose your dog. Your dog might die. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty, so that was a pretty satisfying week. It was pretty fun. Um, if I'm going to get called back into work in the middle of the night, I want it to be for something that, um, I can say. I don't it. think you've had one that's happened during the day while you've been no, there. That I, so I actually said this in a meeting the other day. I said, I think I would probably faint if somebody showed up at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday and said, we have a patient that needs a ventilator. I'd be like, wait, what? I feel like you did come have one, one hours. day <laughs> that did come in during the day, oh. but we were out of town. Oh, yeah. that That's the other thing is, you know, it's just me right now. And so um, there have been a couple of cases in the past year where somebody was like, hey, we have need for a ventilator. It's like, I'm yeah. not I think, there. I think that one though that came in, it may have not, it may have been beyond when it came it in. It was probably not. You were going to describe somebody over the phone how to hook it up. Oh, yeah. I think that might have been a neurologic one. And I think they ended up not doing it because reasons. I don't know. Um, yeah, it is, it is kind of a tricky thing because it's like, well... Yeah, if we could set it up like over FaceTime or something like that, I'm probably I could talk people through oh, it. Oh, like an ambulance? What was is it ambulance? What was the one? Oh yeah, ambulance was the one where they talked her through doing like a thoracotomy. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Did it on the FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a pinch, that's what you do. Um But uh yeah, it's uh I don't remember what I was saying before. It's just it's fun. Yeah. Oh, getting called in the middle of the night and things like that. This was the first ventilator case I've had though where I was actually on call when I got called in for it. Yeah. So that was pretty fun. All the other ones have been times when I was not actually on call. <laughs> I got called in and because again, when you're the only one, that's kind of how it goes. And I was in town and I was able to do it, so that was fine. And and they went well. But this was the first one where it was like, well, at least it's a night when I'm already on call. Um, and then I came in over the weekend, but it was a weekend that I was already scheduled to come in. So, uh, that's progress. I'm pretty sure. But when I made that comment, I can't remember who, who said like that, um, you know, they, they never happen at Tuesday at nine is like, is that confirmation bias? Is that just because you only remember it? And I'm like, well, I can tell you at least from the time that I've been at Virginia tech in the four cases we've had, it's not like actually literally they have all been after hours and yeah. on nights when I was not on call, except for this last one. But it would be kind of an interesting study to look at, like the times that patients get put on the mechanical ventilator. Like just go back, do a retrospective case study. And because you would note that you like went on the ventilator at this time and to see, 
when does it happen? Does it ever happen during the day? Um, and if so, when, like, what are those cases? Yeah. But animals tend to get in trouble after hours. Like, well, so, I think people tend to notice after hours. Yeah, that's when work. you're home. But that's what I mean. Like you're the owner brings home the pill bottle. Well, it's with the owner. If the owner's not home during the day, the pill bottle's not home during yeah. the day. Or if the pill bottle's at home with the dog during the day, but the owner's not home to find it, you get home and it's, yeah. oh, there it is. Also, I think animals don't really do much when you're not there. There's like the five oh, yeah. minutes when you leave that they freak out. Yeah. And then after that, they just kind of eh, lay down for... I guess I'll nap. Hour. And then when they know you're coming back, they freak out for the, like, the yeah. five minutes before. Or like the 30 seconds, yeah. Um, anyhow, that, that, was, that was the big exciting thing for the week. Um, there were probably some little exciting things that I can't think about right now, but or I can't remember. But it was a, it was a very satisfying week. Again, if I'm going to lose some sleep, I want it to be um, have a happy ending later. And this one had a very happy ending. So, yay. Yeah. Oh, and we had done all our workouts... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So you didn't have to worry oh, about the entire training. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. We did get our, our, our crossfitting in. That did work out well, Because we had too. to do... How, did, was the Halloween one this week? That was on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, because we had to do our Halloween, Halloween costume that's one. That's right. We had that. Yeah, that was Monday in between class. Yeah, it was a busy week. That seems like such a long time ago. Yeah. Um, it was a full week, but a good week. I consider this a good week. Um, so... Thanks for listening. Hopefully um, gave you a little bit of information about mechanical ventilation. Not that you now feel like you can do it, um, but that I you can totally uh, do it. You probably could. You're so smart. I got a compressor in the garage. <laughs> All right. As long as you're not trying to do it for me. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll catch you guys next time. Bye. Bye.